I don't know about you, but I'm glad 2016 is over with, huh? We welcome 2017, and, and I'm glad that you're starting it off right by being in the Lord's house today. I, I have a question that uh, has perplexed me for years, and I, I keep asking myself this question over and over again in different forms, but basically it's, it's this. Why don't more life-changing decisions really change a person's life? You get what I'm saying? Why don't real life-changing decisions really change people? I mean, they should, shouldn't they? If you have a life-changing decision, shouldn't it really change you? Uh, people say stuff like this all the time. Well, I had a life-changing experience when I was 8 or 9 or 10 or 50. <laughs> Jesus saved me. My question is, well, why didn't it change your life? Why aren't things different now than, than before? Because I really believe that life-changing experiences ought to change you. Are you all awake? All right, good deal. Hey, I'm a Dallas Cowboy fan. How about you? Anybody? Woo. Yeah, man, they're rolling. I, I understand that, uh, that Tony may come in today. I hope he doesn't get hurt. That's all. I, anyway, that's a different thing. I've always been a Dallas Cowboy fan since I was a little kid. I'm true blue all the way through, man. When they're doing good, good I'm a fan. When they're not doing well, I'm still a fan. Uh, years ago, when they were having a bad season, my dad started calling them the cowgirls. And so when, when they play bad, we, we make fun and call them the, the cowgirls. When, when they're doing good, they're the cow dogs. Because they're playing like Greenwood, so they're the cow dogs in my... Anyway, I believe that the, the greatest coach that's ever lived was Tom Landry. I mean, I just loved the guy. He was just, he was an awesome coach. One day, Tom Landry said that Bob Lilly, number 74, Bob Lilly was the greatest football player he ever coached. Now, th that's a huge statement because... Tom Landry coached a whole lot of great football players, and Tom Landry isn't given to hyperbole. But Bob Lilly was a great player. I mean, he was Mr. Cowboy. Did anybody remember Bob Lilly? Big number 74. He, he, was, he was awesome. Bob Lilly grew up in Texas, and when he was nine years old, he made a life-changing decision at an RA camp in Central Texas. That's a Southern Baptist camp called Royal Ambassadors. But one problem, it didn't really change his life, okay? N not at all. In fact, he said later that he wasn't sure that he was saved when he was nine years of age. No doubt he did drift away from God. He went on and played high school football. His uh, senior year, his parents moved up to Oregon. He graduated from there, but soon went back to Fort Worth and attended TCU and did the college scene and even got further away from God. But he was a great football player in college. In fact, while in college at TCU, he set three life goals. You know, I believe all of us need to make life goals. Well, he set three of them in college. One of them was for college, to make All-American. And he did his senior year, 1960. After he graduated, he became the number one draft choice for the Dallas Cowboys, 1961. That was a great year, 1961. 
two great things happened. I was born in 1961, and Bob Lilly signed with the Dallas Cowboys. His second life goal that he made in college was to make all pro when he became a professional. He did that seven times as a Dallas Cowboy. His third life goal was to win a Super Bowl. And again, he did that with the world champion Dallas Cowboys in 1972. It was Super Bowl number six. They played the Miami Dolphins, and Dallas beat them 24-3. to One of the key plays in Super Bowl number six was when Bob Lilly sacked Bob Greasy for a 26-yard loss. It was awesome, man. I should have played the video for you because, I mean... Bob Greasy was running for his life, and big number 74 was right on his trail. That sack of 26 yards still stands today for the longest sack in Super Bowl history. At 33 years of age, Bob Lilly accomplished every goal that he had set in life. He went on to play pro football for the Cowboys three more years, and then he retired, moved to Waco, Texas, and bought a Coors beer distributorship. Funny thing about it, he made 10 times more selling Coors beer than he did in playing pro football. But you know what? He was empty on the inside. And so was his wife, Ann. So much so that she started attending a Baptist church in Waco and accepted Jesus Christ as her personal Lord and Savior. They were having a, a ladies' Bible study that she was a part of, and one day they were going to have a special Bible study where they invited their husbands. Men were allowed to come. And, and so all the men came, and Ann invited Bob, and sure enough, he came. And during that Bible study, both men and women stood and shared their testimonies. It touched Bob Lilly's heart so much that the big man cried. He didn't know for sure if he was saved at age nine, but he said he knew for sure something happened to his life at that Bible study. In fact, he started attending the Baptist church, became a member of it. But like many good Baptists, he kept his church life and his work life separate. Like you can do that. You see, here's the problem. Bob Lilly's second life-changing decision still really hadn't changed his life. Are you getting me? Then one night he was driving home to Waco from Dallas on I-35 and he came across a horrific wreck. Several cars were involved. There was one car with three young boys in it, teenage boys. Bob stopped and went to that car and sought to seek if he could help those teenage boys. And when he opened the car door, he said Coors beer cans fell out everywhere from the floorboard of the car onto the interstate. And he realized that his business was killing people. So he went back home to Waco, sold the Coors beer distributorship because he said he felt like God was telling him to do that. Ding, ding, ding. Bob Lilly's life-changing experience finally changed his life. But isn't that the essence of Christianity? I mean, isn't that what this is all about? This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where the water hits the wheel. When your life-changing experience really changes your life. Hmm. I wonder... Has that happened for you? 
Has that really happened for you? If, if you claim to be a Christ follower, is your life any different now than before you had your life-changing experience? Or I could even get more personal and ask you, is your life any different today as a believer than it was last year as a believer? It, today is January the 1st, 2017. It's time to talk about change. We all do that at the first of the year, uh, out with the bad, in with the new. We have all these New Year's resolutions that we make, and you know what? Uh, they're mostly cosmetic, aren't they? Uh, I find it uh, fun to go on the internet and look at every year the new resolutions that we make. They are really the same old resolutions that we've made the past 20 years. We just changed the wording a little differently. Yeah. But they're all cosmetic. Let me, let me tell you what it is for 2017. Here are some of the top resolutions we're making. Number one is to get healthy. <laughs> That's always a resolution, you know. Uh, to eat better, to work out, that kind of stuff. Number two, get organized. Well, that would help, wouldn't it? Number three, to live life to the fullest. <laughs> that sounds exciting. I'd like to do that one. Number four, learn a new hobby. I haven't mastered my old ones yet. The, the next one, spend less, save more. Uh, another resolution is, is read more. And all of those are good, but they're basically cosmetic. Well, why don't we talk this morning about real life change? What really can change your life? How, how do you go about changing from where you are right now to where God wants you to be? And for those of you in this room who have actually had a life-changing experience with Jesus Christ, that's where it all begins. Because let me tell you, you can't change your own life. It's the power of God working in you that brings about radical change. But once you have accepted Jesus, there are a few things you need to do. God saves you, but he leaves a few things up to you to change. And if you really want life change, these are the things you're going to have to do. Paul mentions them in Philippians chapter 3. It's one of my favorite New Year's passages. I have all these passages of Scripture I read at different times of the year. Here's one that I always read at the beginning of the year. Philippians 3, you know these two verses, 13 and 14. Paul says, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to the things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God, which is in Christ Jesus. In these two verses, Paul gives us two things that will literally change our lives. And they're pretty simple. You want the first one? Here it is. Number one, you just need to forget the past. Put it behind you, all right? He said in verse 13, one thing I do. That's pretty impressive. Of all the things Paul could have said, he said, here's the one thing I do. I forget those things that are behind me. Forget what lies behind. You know what, church? The past will never allow you to break free from its death grip until you make a deliberate effort to put it behind you. You've got to do that. You've got to put the past behind you. God will forgive you of your past, but you've got to forgive it as well, and you've got to put it behind you. I think there are three areas of your past that you need to forget today. Skeletons, bruises, 
and letter jackets. Okay? We'll get to that, all right? Number one, you need to forget the skeletons. Skeletons represent all the mistakes that we have made in the past. They represent all the bad things that we have done in our life. Those things that you really hope and pray the preacher never finds out about. Those kinds of things. You know what? We all have them, don't we? We all have skeletons in our closets. I do. So much so that I wrote a little poem about it, all right? I'm not a poet, and you'll know it. <laughs> right here it is. Here's my poem about it. We failed, we sinned, we blew it, and we wish we could undo it. Isn't that great? But how profound. We failed, we sinned, we blew it. And man, I wished I could undo it. The, the great apostle Paul had skeletons clanging around in his closet too. In fact, in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen was apprehended and stoned to death by the Jewish leaders, it says this in Acts 7, 58, And they laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. That was Paul before his name was changed. And even though Saul didn't pick up a rock and throw it at Stephen, he did participate in Stephen's death. He also participated in the killing and the imprisonment of many other believers. But you know what? That happened before the Damascus Road experience. And on the Damascus Road, Saul encountered Jesus Christ. And God's power forgave him of his past sins. It cleansed him and it made him a new person in Jesus. The old was passed away and everything became new. Therefore, Paul's counsel to us today is, you know what? You need to leave the past behind. You need to forget the skeleton. Sure, you've made mistakes. Listen to me. We've all made mistakes. We all have a laundry list of bad choices we've made. But you know what? If Jesus has forgiven you, it's forgiven. So in your own past, you need to stop digging up the bones. Let yourself be forgiven. I mean, think about this. If God has forgiven you, shouldn't you be able to forgive yourself? Really? And if you come to God and ask for forgiveness, I guarantee you, he does forgive. He's a God of forgiveness. He'll hold it against your account no longer. He'll put it in the sea of forgetfulness, never to drag it up before you again. So if God does that, why can't we do that? I have in my image, my mind, the image of, of the story in Luke chapter 15. Great story. We, we, we have falsely named it the story of the prodigal son. Because that's where we get hung up, this son that goes out and does crazy stuff. But you know what? Really, the message of that story is the forgiveness of the father. The story is really about the, forgot, the father. This son, he wanted his inheritance to, to go and, and blow it in the wild, wicked city. And so he did that. He ruined his life. He disgraced his family name. And after he had lost everything and spent time living with the pigs, he's limping up the road going home to daddy with the smell of swine still stuck in his hair. The father, who represents God, is standing on the front porch looking down the road. I think he did that every day. 
hoping that this would be the day that my son comes to his senses and comes home. And you know, this was the day. Here come his boy up the road. And the Bible says that the father ran. He ran to meet his son. That's the picture of God. When you make that first step to God, when you finally have had enough of the life of sin you're living and seek his forgiveness and take a step of faith toward him, man, he's bolting towards you to embrace you, to forgive you, to put a robe on your shoulders, shoes on your feet, and a ring on your finger as well. God runs because he is blind to our skeletons. So don't let the skeletons of your past stop you from being the person God wants you to be. It's not too late. So number one, number one, forget the skeletons. Number two, forget the bruises. It's time to put all the hurts and the bitterness and the pain behind you. I know others have been unfair to you. Other people have treated you badly. And they shouldn't have, but they did. And you've been hurt, really hurt. But you know what? You are hurting even more now because you're trapped in bitterness. And that anger and bitterness is eating you alive. Did you know that your bitterness doesn't hurt the people who hurt you in the first place? They could care less. But that bitterness is killing you. And don't look at me like you don't know what you think you know what I'm talking about, because you know exactly what I'm saying. We all have that. There are people who have hurt us. I could never forgive it. It reminds me of the man who was bitten by a rabid dog. He went to the doctor. The doctor said, I'm sorry, sir, there's nothing I can do for you. You're just going to have to die a, a slow, painful death, and it's going to be horrible. So the man took out a piece of paper and started writing. The doctor said, well, what are you doing? To which the man replied, I'm making a list of all the people I'm going to go buy before I die. I'm sure you have your list, don't you? Paul could have had a list. Because let me tell you, Paul had been abused. People had taken advantage of him. They had done him bad. In fact, there's a passage of Scripture that kind of describes some of this. I read it to you recently. It's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Listen to what Paul said. Verse 22, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. And here he goes. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. That reminds me of my childhood, right? No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeys often. In perils of water. In peril, perils of robbers. 
in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Let me tell you, Paul had every reason in the world to be bitter. He had his bruises. In fact, let me tell you something. Paul could have even been bitter towards God. Because I guarantee you, his life was a whole lot better before he had that conversion than after he had that conversion. That's when life got tough for him. But he wasn't bitter. He put it behind him. He forgot the past bruises. And my friend, my advice to you today is to put it behind you. Put all the bruises behind you. Get over your angerness. Get over your bitterness. You're never going to change as long as the root of bitterness has its tentacles wrapped around your heart. You know, I know how it is. I, I think that I have forgiven that person. And then all of a sudden, one day, out of nowhere, the devil brings it up in my mind. Can you believe that he really did that to you? And it was 30 years ago. And then all those emotions come back again. You know, guys, I'm just real practical. The way, I, the way I deal with it is that at that point, I start praying for that person. Because I find that, that if I'm praying for that person and if I'm wanting God's grace and love and mercy in that person's life, I can't be mad at them. So he's saying forget the past, forget the skeletons, forget the bruises. Number three, forget the letter jackets. Not only should we forget the past failures, but we need to forget all those past successes as well. Because you know what? You really weren't as good as what you remember. You know? It's kind of like that t-shirt that I've, I've seen that says, the older I get, the better I was. <laughs> you, you really weren't that great, you know? Honestly, that, that is the central teaching of Philippians chapter 3. When Paul said in verse 4, Though I also might have confidence of the flesh. If anyone thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel. I was of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Concerning the law of Pharisee. Concerning zeal. Persecuting the church. Concerning the righteousness which is of the law. I was blameless. I mean, let me tell you, Paul's resume was pretty impressive. He was the man. In the religious world, he had reached the summit. Paul was the equivalent of a first century cardinal. He, one bump down from the Pope. But you know what? He realized one day he was on the wrong side. And all of these physical accomplishments were worth nothing. And so he forgot all his wins Listen to this. He took off his old letter jacket and he put on the robe of a servant. And I think that's pretty good advice for the rest of us. I hear people say all the time, and it makes me cringe when they say it. Oh, I used to, and then I'm cringing because I know what's coming. Oh, I used to be involved, 
Oh, I used to give. Oh, I used to teach. Oh, I used to do this. I used to do that. But you know what? I've kind of letting that go, and I'm letting younger people do it, and blah, 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 blah. And I'm thinking, dude, listen, are you, are you even hearing the voice of God? Because what God is saying to you right now is, okay, what, what are you doing for me right now? Because can I tell you something? Christianity is something we do not retire from. Thank you. Thank you for all you've done. Thank you for being faithful in 2016. Thank you for giving all that you've given. Thank you for all the work you've done. Thank you. The Lord appreciates it. I appreciate it. But you know what? This is a new year. This is January 1, 2017. God and I are both wondering, how are you going to step up your game this year? That was welcomed. You want a real life-changing experience? Forget the past. Both failures and successes. But number two, focus on the future. For your life-changing experience to really change your life, you need to focus on what's ahead of you. Want a real life change? Paul writes about it here in verse 13. He said, reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal. It's a prize. It's the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I think what Paul is envisioning here is that athlete reaching out for the finish line. He's focused on his task. He is exerting his body, doing everything he can to reach the prize that is ahead of him. I saw it yesterday in the Alabama game. That, that dude was tackled on the three-yard line. But, I mean, he was so bound and determined to get into the end zone that he stretched his body out with the ball, and he crossed the plane. Today I want you to envision the goal that God has for your life. See it in front of you. Set some goals for your life. Get a clear sense of the objective that God has for you. In verse 14, Paul put it like this. Here's what I'm doing. I am pressing toward the goal. And the goal for me is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I want to be like Jesus. And that is the goal that I'm Pressing for. Now, Paul was a big sports fan, no doubt about it, because right here he's using the language of the arena. I'm reaching out for the goal. I know what I want. I see the finish line. I'm striving for it. One warning I want to give you, though. Make sure you're focused on the right goal. Because there's a lot of distractions out there. Bob Lilly had three goals. And when he finished getting them, he was bone dry, empty on the inside. In fact, he said that within 24 hours of Super Bowl VI number win, he was asking himself, is this all that there really is? Wow. You know, I know it's, it's hard to set the right goal and keep your eyes focused on it because there are so many distractions in life. Are you with me? Do you understand? It's hard to stay focused with everything else going on. And sometimes you can get so wrapped up in just living life every day that you forget what that goal is that God has for you. It's 
21 years old. Angie and I lived in Enid, Oklahoma. I was a youth pastor. First Free Old Baptist Church, Enid, Oklahoma. Life was good, man. We were having a great time in Enid. I was the youth pastor, and somehow or another, I convinced Miss Angie on our limited income that I would be a much more effective youth pastor if I owned and rode a motorcycle. I'd had a motorcycle or a minibike since I was a kid. My dad bought our first ones when we were just little bitty kids. And, and so I'd ridden my whole life, and, and I loved the freedom of a motorcycle. And so I, she let me, and, and I had very limited money, but I did find a good deal on an old Suzuki 450. Wasn't big, didn't have a lot of power, but I was free on it, man. And I, I rode that bike all over town, Enid, you know, ministering to kids and and my pastor buddy Drake, he got one too. I didn't tell the first service people this because they wouldn't get into it. But he bought one too. And we did hospital visitations on our motorcycle. And uh, what we would do, we loved doing this. We would, we would go to the little convenience store and we would park our bikes right out on the road of a very busy intersection. We'd go in and buy IBC root beers <laughs> in the bottles. And then we'd come out and sit on those motorcycles and drink those IBCs. And just wait to hear it from church people. That's the, that's the kind of training I came up under, Buddy Drake. Just stirring the pot, man, stirring the pot. I don't know. It's crazy, I know. Anyway, one day I was out at his house. Buddy and Janice and the girls were on vacation. He had a bunch of bird dogs, and he asked me to come feed them every day. And so I was out there feeding his bird dogs. And it was, it was late springtime, early summer, it's getting into the evening time, and, and I was riding back into Enid from north where he lived, and, and it was a big highway, it's a four-lane divided road, and I'm doing the speed limit on my little Suzuki 450 with no windshield, right? And then I saw this dark cloud forming ahead of me, and then, then all of a sudden it just, it just opened up, and I mean, it came a gully washer. And that hurt, man. Rain, rain hitting you in the face when you're going 55 miles an hour on a motorcycle with no windshield hurts. Okay? But I could see the sun past the rain. And I was raised in West Texas. These little pop-up thunderstorms come all the time. And I knew the best thing to do is just to bear down and go through it, man. So I laid down on that tank and I opened that throttle up and I gave it all she had. And we were buzzing through that thunderstorm. And yes, the rain hurt but not as bad as the hell that followed. Because <laughs> it started hailing. And I mean, the, the hailstones weren't big. They were like pea-sized. Man, I'm telling you, going 70 miles an hour, getting pelted by hell, and I'm jerking and moving, and that bike is sweeping around. And I don't know, I mean, it happened this, it happened this quick, but it seemed like it was in slow motion. It was a voice that came in my ears, and it said, Harmon, if you don't focus, you're dead. And I did, man. I stopped looking at the hell, I stopped jerking around, and I got down to business doing what I should have been doing, and that is riding that bike. Big life lesson I learned that day, and here it is. Life can be like riding a motorcycle through a hailstorm. It really can be. There are so many distractions happening all around me that I lose focus on what I really ought to be doing and what God wants me to do.
Paul never let that happen. Paul always remembered what was important. He never took his eyes off the goal. And friend, one day you're going to stand before the Lord. And only what you did for Him is going to matter. So my advice is that you set a goal. Make it His goal. And keep your eyes on that goal. Then the second thing is not only envision the goal, but engage the goal. The problem with what I'm preaching this morning is that it becomes too vague. It's all theory and no practice. But you know what? Life change is nothing but vague. Life change is concrete. It's action. So your focus on the future needs to be taken in moment-by-moment acts of obedience. For example, okay, for example, if one of your objectives is to raise godly children, that's a pretty good objective, okay? If your objective is to raise godly children, then you know what? You're going to have to live a godly life in front of them. You can't fool those kids. They see you in your best days and in your worst days. They know when you're faking it and when you're for real. So you need to teach them through your lifestyle. You need to teach them to read their Bible and to pray. You need to teach them that going to church is the right thing to do. And it's the fun thing to do. And you bring them to church. You show them how to live a godly life by your godly life. Your life change should change your life. Why don't you do that and just tell me how it goes, all right? Or, for example, you want to have a better witness at work? Why don't you change your language? The way you talk? Maybe not just profanity. You shouldn't be cussing anyway. Reminds me of a story. (laughs) Went to Hillsdale, and then I went to Southwestern Seminary. Spent eight years training to become a pastor, and then I become a pastor, and I realized... I didn't have adequate training. <laughs> my first church in Pine Bluff, this, this, I hadn't been there but a couple of months, and this guy came in my office. He's a, he's a big, rough guy, and he said, Preacher, I want to know what you're going to do with. And then he names this other guy in the church. And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, there's a big problem here. And I said, well, well Jerry, what's the problem? And he said, well, let me tell you about it. This guy's a deacon in our church, and he prays in our church, and And he takes up the offering in our church. And I've worked with this guy for 20 years. And he cusses like a sailor. He's totally different at work than he is at church. I thought, Lord, have mercy. This is is a problem. Can I just, I'm being real honest with you. If you've had a life-changing experience with Jesus Christ, it should change you, including your mouth. Call me old-fashioned, but let me tell you, profanity has, it has no room in your mouth. And not just profanity, the way you talk to people. Okay, I'll get off that one. Let me give you another one. You want moral purity in your life? Be morally pure. Stop watching the wrong movies. It's as simple as that. You can't let junk in and expect 
pure righteousness to come out. Because if junk comes in, junk is going to come out. If you want to be morally pure, then you need to clean up what you watch and what you let in through your eyes. God, it's not rocket science. And the key is to start. For Bob Lilly, it was selling a beer distributorship. I hadn't planned on doing it, but let me just talk about that for a second. Because I, even in Christian circles, the vogue thing today is to drink. My daughter, Callie, went to Baylor last year. Baylor is a Baptist school. You know what? There's a lot of preacher kids at Baylor. There's a lot of church kids down at Baylor. Sure, it's turned into a secular school, but you know what? It's still very religious and very Christian-oriented. She called home one day, and she said, Dad, I, cannot, I can't fathom this. I can't believe this. How, how, can, how can all of these people say that they're followers of Jesus Christ and Christians and then they, they, they go out and they get drunk and they drink and they think it's no big deal and they make fun of me because I don't. I didn't, I didn't really have a good answer for Callie because let me tell you, I don't understand that. If you've had a life-changing experience with Jesus Christ, it should change every aspect of your life. And let me tell you something. You can't keep living like the world and say you're following Jesus. It doesn't work, man. And the worst thing we can do is say we're a Christian and then we don't back it up with our life. Well, for Bob Lilly, it was selling that beer distributorship. I don't know what it is for you. But God knows. And let me say, God will tell you. Life-changing decisions ought to change your life. That's my whole point. Life-changing decisions ought to change your life. Has it? His power can. But you need to do your part as well. Forget the past, focus on his future.